Hello, everyone, and welcome to another spooky episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are having back our favorite Mike from Cinemusts. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm good. Were there other Mike on Cinemusts that uh, I edged out? (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say... I don't think there's been another mic on this podcast either. I'm all, I'm very honored. <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're just riffing. It's 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 been a long day. <laughs> I agreed. Yeah. No, I'm very happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mike. If you want to remind our listeners what you do over on Cinemus and where they can find you, that would be great. Sure. On Cinemus, I scratch and claw away through my schedule as a full-time employee and parents who (laughs) put out episodes, but when I get them out there, we're talking about movies from the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. We discuss them, and our listeners decide if those movies deserve a spot on the list of truly essential cinema. Um, So October has not been very traditional for us. Not a lot of scary movies. We've had uh, scary in a different way with our Birth of a Nation episode, and then uh, we've done African Queen, but we are looking forward to releasing our episode on 1931's Dracula with you, Maggie, so you guys can look forward to that coming up. We'd love to hear your votes on if the movie deserves a spot on the list of essential movies, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts just by searching for Cinemusts. I spell it C-I-N-E-M-U-S-T-S. Highly recommend you guys check that out if you haven't already, which I'd be very surprised if listeners of the Best Pictures podcast haven't already started listening to Cinemus. Um, all their episodes are great. You know, I have guested on a few of the past and it is always a really fun time. Awesome. So on our second spooky episode, we are doing another big twist blockbuster, The Sixth Sense. Again, kind of same thing we said for Diabolique, since this movie does really rely on a twist at the end. If you haven't seen it, if you don't know what the twist is and you're like, I will be so mad if it's ruined for me, maybe pause the episode, go watch the movie and then come back. And you you would be so mad. So do that if you don't know the twist. Like, I didn't know the twist somehow. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I definitely want to talk about Ian's uh, first time through this movie. Uh, Very thankfully, he did not have it spoiled for him. The Sixth Sense was a 1999 supernatural horror film. It is written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It's his third feature film and really like established him as being known for those twist endings. Um, And I do believe people who I've talked to who are big fans of his, I think a lot of them, this one is their favorite of his twists. It stars Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment, and it is about a child psychologist whose new patient claims he can see and talk to ghosts. It was the second highest grossing film of 1999, and Willis was actually cast as part of a deal to compensate for the previous year's film, Broadway Brawler, which just fell apart completely in production. So Disney was basically like, you owe us this three-picture deal so we don't sue you for like all of the stuff that went into that production falling apart. Uh, so this was one of the the movies he had to make for part of that. It is very, very well known um, as far as like best pictures, greatest movies lists. Uh, so the American Film Institute has it ranked as number 60 on AFI's 100 Thrills, number 89 on their best movies for their like 10th anniversary list. And it has the number 44 quote as I see dead people. 
I can see that. I remember the slew of like I see blank people merch that came out right after this movie, which that one I did know about. So I have at least the smallest amount of pop culture awareness. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess if you hadn't seen the movie and you just knew there was a twist, then when it hit that point, you'd be like, oh, that's the twist is that the kid sees dead people. Little do you know. <laughs> Uh, this was also named uh, the number 50, like 101 greatest screenplays ever written by the Screen Writers Guild of America, which I think is really awesome. And I can totally see because this script has to be impeccable to work. Kind of in the same way that I don't, I, I think Di Diabolique, I'm going to say that wrong for the rest of eternity. So thanks for bearing with me. Um, but the way that that screenplay also worked, and again, in French still, but the construction overall, I think, is just masterful in keeping things consistent enough to continue to work before and after the reveal. I just think that's so fun. Yeah, both of those scripts rely so much on like what the audience's perspective is and how you're viewing it. Yeah. So this movie was also nominated for six Academy Awards. It won none of them so it was nominated for best picture i don't know does anyone know what did win that year because it'll make you mad i do and it does make me mad it's american beauty oh yep. fuck off <laughs> which yeah. really is, is a movie i go up and down on I, I have a real roller coaster relationship with american beauty and i think i'm on the down slope right now but i i do occasionally come up on it i love the soundtrack like, because mm. Thomas Newman is my jam always, just unconditionally. But, like, it ages like sour milk. <laughs> I haven't seen it before, but I have a feeling when we view it, it's going to be something where I'm going to be like, oh, of course that would win in the late 90s, yeah. but now it just doesn't yep. work. The man would have been great if Sixth Sense had won, although then I guess we couldn't cover it right now. Uh, Shyamalan was also nominated for Best Director, Haley Joel Osment, or as I have through most of my notes, HJO um, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Absolutely agree with that nomination. He's amazing. He really carries this film. Not that anybody's bad in it, but his performance is just truly outstanding and kind of what everything hinges on. Uh, Tony Collette was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Love that as well. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Film Editing. I just love me some Tony Collette. Mm -hmm like she's great it's so good as a very fast aside have either of you seen muriel's wedding never no, I haven't. oh it's her first like breakout role in australia australia or new zealand i can't remember which but um it's really good <laughs> and she's great on my list and united states of Terra as well that's a tv series but that was like my first tony collette experience but anyway sorry to derail but I love her. <laughs> You're good. And that is all I have for back notes. Or that is all I have for background so we can start going into watch notes. I prefer back notes, honestly. <laughs> um, we open with a... I feel like it kind of starts a little bit creepy where you have um, the psychologist, Malcolm Crow. his wife is in their, like, great wine cellar. Um, and you have kind of the first introduction of like the cold and like that being like eerie and everything. Yeah. And I think with the sound track slash soundscape 
in this particular film, they do rely a lot on kind of the, um, I don't know, almost Halloween-esque like string bites and screeches and the foreboding like drone high-pitched um, in the background, but really appreciated it here. Every jump scare has that like little sting to it, which like kind of gets you, but also as a horror movie wimp, I do appreciate the score always like kind of warning me when like scary things are about to happen. Yeah, agreed. Uh, definitely aping a lot of Psycho with the score there, but I, I like the score a lot. I think it's good. I'm a little mad it didn't get nominated. It did get nominated that year for Square. Yeah, I, I agree on that, because especially when you get further in towards some of the reveal, especially when he gives the videotape, Cole gives the videotape to um, the deceased daughter's father, like the way they're able to move this foreboding theme into something that's like actually mournful and sweet is just such a, such a cool transformation that they have there in, in the score in particular. So I, it's one of those things where it, I wouldn't call it flashy by any means, but it is one of the more effective scores I've, I've heard in a while. So the one that won that year was the red violin. Oh, well, and then American Beauty, Angela's Ashes, The Cider House Rules, and The Talented Mr. Ripley uh, were the nominees. Interesting. Can vouch for American Beauty. I own that soundtrack and listen to it while I work. <laughs> I do think the score is like really indicative of the very fine line that this movie kind of toes between like being scary and also being really heartfelt. Which is why, as someone who does not like horror movies, I still feel like I can watch this movie because I really care about, like, the characters and the story. And I feel like they do that by, like, immediately setting up Malcolm and his wife and setting up kind of the idea that he has contributed so much to, like, children's psychology in, uh, I think they're in Philadelphia He's finally gotten this award. She's very proud of him, but we're dropping hints that like he has sacrificed uh, many things, including potentially parts of their relationship in order to get there, which will be so important uh, to hiding this twist later on in the movie. And they're very drunk cute. I like I like the uh, Dr. Seuss touch there. It, it is a I think there's there's a little ham-fisted exposition here in establishing the relationship, but I think that they win you back over with like you you like these two. It's important to you that they're happy and they work out their problems. Yeah, yeah, they do kind of rush the exposition a little bit, which on like at first this was like the second time I'd watched the film, and so at first I was like, oh, this maybe this isn't going to live up to my memory of it. But then they immediately get into like. I guess like the action and I was like, oh, you just had to set up that really quickly. And now we're going to really take our time building the rest of it, um, starting with them going upstairs. And then you immediately have like the end of the drunk cuteness when they realize that someone has broken in and they just find that shattered window and the phone that's like slightly off the hook. And the empty gun holster, which ooh, <laughs> uh, mm. don't like it. Did not like. I I really like. I was kind of looking at the movie and thinking, what's special to me about the movie is the way in which it 
moves away from like what it was sold as, which is like it's the the creepy movie about the kid who sees dead people, which is the trope of horror movies is like the creepy kid with some kind of gift or a curse, you know, the shining, the exorcist, all that stuff. And and kind of like what you were saying, Maggie, that really at its core, it's a very sweet movie about a lot of sensitive subjects. And I say sensitive in like that they are both they take like some handling to get at the crux of them, but also like they are at like the frail core of humanity. It's about communication and relationships and dealing with trauma. And I liked in the sequence that that's kind of hinted at because the, the scary thing that you see is not, you know, robber that's broken in or anything, but like when we reveal Donnie Wahlberg and he's just this frail guy standing there in his underwear. And that is so much more unsettling than like, you know, your funny games, like, pair of guys in ski masks I, I just was like that is a really really good move that ties into like what the story itself is also about yeah and that while you're scared of Donnie Wahlberg there's also like that part of you that just like feels so sorry for him because immediately we realize he was a patient of Malcolm's and the whole thing is like you said you could help me and you couldn't so like we're setting up Malcolm's unfinished business where also you have this character that like immediately you just feel for um which I think is so important to getting you to feel for Cole and like really wanting him to be okay and understanding why Malcolm is like so determined to make sure Cole is okay because like we saw the worst case scenario with Vincent yeah the way that they actually panned through well I guess cut the editing in in the end of that scene as well as just the the cinematography and the pans that they had I think was t- tasteful is maybe not the right quite the right, right word but it it did exactly what I needed it to in terms of us knowing what was going on but panning away from the worst of it. Yeah, I mean we definitely get some drunk or some yeah, some jump scares and some like kind of gory-ish bits later but i would say that like in general not a super gory film and the gore always has like a very sad note to it like it doesn't ever feel like i'm like you're just shocking me like it always feels like it has a point and then after that do we we immediately we malcolm gets shot but then we immediately cut to like a few weeks later a few months later a year right? i believe oh, is it the a- next fall right around Halloween. (laughs) But we get the shot where Cole kind of just almost like a ghost materializes out of his front door and have Malcolm watching from across the way. And what I really loved upon reflection is the way, again, after knowing the twist, you see Cole almost sprinting away from Malcolm. Cause again, he knows Malcolm's a ghost and is scared, like just totally terrified of him. So it, it, fun little touches like that really shine when I think back on them. Yeah. And all the cinematography in the church, cause Cole runs to this uh, beautiful, beautiful church. And I love the way everything is shot in there. Cause we get a couple of scenes in there, uh, but you have him playing with his little action figures Uh, one of which speaks in Latin. And then that's when you have like Malcolm interacting with Cole for the first time. And I, I think this is why we had some of that heavy handed exposition earlier 
is because we already know Malcolm's really good with kids and like really good at his job. And I think we needed that so that when you're watching it the second time, you're not like, it's ridiculous that Cole would talk to him and trust him because he knows he's a ghost. You're like, he knows he's a ghost, but also like this is a ghost that approaches him very like kindly and carefully and is like very used to dealing with untrusting children. See, this is interesting because I never thought that I read the movie that Cole knew Bruce Willis was dead right away. Because he's like, like you said, he's he's kind of like the one ghost who appears to Cole who didn't. I mean, he did die a violent death, but not like in agony the way the others do. So like his appearance to him mimics the way anybody else would walk up to him on the street. So I actually never read the movie that way. But see what I really love about that is the after the reveal, we understand the full weight of Cole's statement about the ghosts seeing what they want to see. And because mm-hmm. we are so mm-hmm. clearly seeing this from Malcolm's perspective, we're seeing what he wants to see. So like, I, I, in, yep. I think in my heart of hearts that uh, Cole saw the gunshot wound, saw the blood on his shirt, like we ultimately get to see at the end. But for whatever reason, it's less terrifying than have, well, some of the other stuff that we saw. I don't know. I mean, also, though, we as the audience see what we want to see. True. When we watch this movie. And that's where I was going is that the brilliance of this is that it uses the language of editing and cinematography to reinforce just the way ghosts experience this world, that they see what they want to see and time and space fit what they need it to be. And yeah, I don't know if you all noticed this, but do you do you know if we ever see Malcolm from the back? I don't think so. Or if we or if we do, he's wearing a different outfit and another cool touch is that all of the wardrobe you see him wear are just variations on what he was wearing the night of the first scene. So you see him, you know, at his house later and he's wearing like a jacket, but it's the same hoodie he put on when his wife came back up from the cellar and was like it's cold. So everything is always tied back to that one night even if he's switching his wardrobe around, he was wearing like three different things that night. Yeah, oh, I missed that. All That's of the great. Little, the little bitty <laughs> things uh, that I think like really seal the movie. Um, what was the next scene? I think really we we get some of the development of Cole and Malcolm's relationship. Some interesting but kind of rote montages with like doing the circling of the notes and all that stuff to try and talk about Cole's quote unquote condition, or at least how, how Malcolm sees his condition. Um, but really I think the cabinet scene is what starts to amp up the supernatural aspect of everything. Um, and again, the exposition at the beginning, I think was fast and kind of, as you said, Mike could be arguably ham fisted this where, how they introduce, um, Cole's mom, Lynn, I think is that character's name. Um, but Tony Collette's character character, um, so quickly you understand exactly what's going on in that family is like a single mother, super stressed out, just trying to get things together for her kid. Like you feel for that character very quickly. Their relationship is so good. Like the the mother-son relationship is so sweet. Like um, we have with the cabinets, like her closing the cabinets, leaving the room, coming back, and they are all open and he's just sitting there. And 
you have like that moment of Cole lying to his mom that he was looking for something. He was looking for Pop-Tarts because he doesn't want to scare her and he doesn't want her to look at him the way other people look at him. And so we constantly bring back the um, look at my face, do I look mad? Or look at my face, do I look um, like I think you're a freak or something? And there is the heartbreaking line where he says, uh, Mama, what are you thinking? Are you thinking something bad about me? Which on first watch could be very creepy. <laughs> but on second watch is just so heartbreaking. Well, and again, that's what I love about this movie is that it, it's taking the trope of like the creepy kid with the curse and it's not playing it up for tension. It's playing it up to analyze like a relationship and get at the movie's central theme about how you help children dealing with trauma or going through a hard time. And so I, Tony Collette, I, I am torn on whose performance of the movie for me. It's definitely her or Haley Joe Osment. It's, it's one of the Sears family members. But I just love every move she makes here. I love that she is simultaneously able to be super mom and amazing, but she's never perfect. And, and we'll talk about this later, but I really, really love that the movie includes the the scene with the argument about the Bumblebee pennant because it keeps her from being a, someone who does have everything like way too together for somebody in her situation. It's a humanizing um, scene. I think she's... Yeah, she's just pitch perfect, and every every one of those look at my face moments is like a tearjerker for me. But there was a jump scare in there because it is a horror film. Oh, and, <laughs> and then she when screams. she screams too. <laughs> yeah, that was when I texted Maggie and and definitely said, "Hey, I'm sure you hated all of these jump scares, and there are I so many." I forgot how many there were. <laughs> I forgot how many there were because in my mind, I there were a couple that I remembered. I remembered the teacher at the very end, the drama teacher who died in the fire. I remember her. I remembered the person who got hit by the car, and I remember uh, Misha Barton playing the girl who like which I think is the scariest scene is when this like very yeah. sick girl yeah. uh, shows up in his fort, which is like his safety zone. So I remember those three. There are like five or six other jump scares that I did not remember. And they got me and I was really, really mad about it. Your personal protection pillow wasn't ready. <laughs> <sighs> no, it wasn't because I was trying to take notes. <laughs> I was wrapped in multiple blankets though. That's a good call. I, that's good. Cause it gets very cold. <laughs> Um, so, so there's a tone question for you guys. I remember when the movie came out, it was very dumped on for not being scary. Cause that's every, every horror movie when it comes out is like, Oh, it's not scary. It's everybody's favorite thing to do. Um, no, knowing now that the movie, I don't feel really aspires totally to being a horror movie. I think it really aspires to being this heart touching story about communication. Do do you think the jump scares are do they fit? Are they well warranted? Do they feel just kind of like cheap throw-ins so the movie can kind of earn its thriller tag? Like how do they work for you? I they work for me because we don't start seeing ghosts until we know that Cole can see ghosts. Like there's the the cabinets and then when Cole gets locked in that room at the birthday party are really the only two before that. And with both of those, we just know something creepy and supernatural is going on, but I don't think they go too hard into it. I think once we know he can see ghosts and then we start seeing them too, that's when it really started to creep me out. And they work for me because they always fit the atmosphere. And it's like almost 
the smaller touches are scarier. Like Tony Collette constantly fiddling with their thermostat because it's too cold in there. And we as an audience are like, that's because there are ghosts. There are ghosts in your house. And like, that's the part that scares me. That's how you get ghosts. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sorry. I love the jump scares. And it's all about putting us in the shoes of Cole for me. So, yeah, it it was startling to have Tony Collette scream as she sees this crazy scene ahead of her with every cabinet and drawer open. But imagine Cole's terror at whatever happened prior to that. So I think it's a, a small window into kind of how he's seeing the world. Mike, what are your thoughts on the jump scares? I, I love them for similar reasons. I'm, I'm, First and foremost, like it is still a ghost story, so I I like them laying down the atmosphere. Um, I I just like them. <laughs> I, I I there's a couple that will as we get to them, I'll talk about them. But I think that they'll they'll play this move that if they are playing a jump scare to just kind of keep the tension up or keep the thrills up, that it does serve a narrative purpose in developing either the way Cole sees the world or or kind of more importantly the way Cole covers up his reality in order to at least like like you'd mentioned not make his mom look at him the way other people look at him which is a great character touch there's a couple others that happen that i'm like "Mm, that's you just kind of wanted to show something scary that doesn't really fit but then it leads to cole being able to explain how the ghost world works which is going to become very important with malcolm's revelation and all that so i don't know that there are any that I'm like, that was cheap. That's just there because you're a horror movie. I- I'll mention the one that comes closest to me when we get to it, but I love them. Yeah. I think they work. And I, not every horror movie and every jump scare has to be the scariest thing you've ever seen. True. Right. I'd rather it not be, honestly. Well, you can self-select out of the most scary ones. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to run out of movies again. Very true. Eventually. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot out there. Like, I, I think more, more than the, our remaining lifetime amount of movies. But that's, hey, <laughs> not to get too dark for Halloween. But yeah, Exorcist was a Best Picture nominee. Mm, I've seen that one. I've not. I want to. I need to. Oh, I watched it with rough. the volume, like, all the way down. And I made my roommate in college watch it with me. And I was doing homework while I watched it as a distraction unacceptable but i've technically seen it (laughs) but to transition a little bit towards the initial real like kind of starting to get into the more therapy style interactions between malcolm and cole when cole gets home and malcolm is just sitting there i love the chemistry and how they play off one another in the scene and how well the writing supports the shift in power between the two which i is kind of weird to say that like in some sense they are equals in like from a power perspective but the game that they're playing and the way that cole is able to kind of shatter to some extent malcolm's preconceived notions of what cole is actually going through I find to be fascinating, especially given kind of where their relationship leads and the one line specifically around how can you help me if you don't believe me? So really laying the groundwork here, I think, to to give 
enough of that chemistry to make it a really tight and fun relationship to watch. Maybe fun is not quite the right. Interesting is more, more of a way to put it. Um, but still have enough of that distance to, to give them that space to go to and have that revelation later on with um, the old tapes. I think it's a very important moment for Malcolm to see that like his expectations are not always going to be correct. And that like, he doesn't, you know, even if he is an expert and he's done this a million times, like he doesn't always know the situation and kind of to tie that back to Vincent again, it's like, are we seeing the same assumptions that Malcolm made about Vincent? The leader failed him. Um, but yeah, that's a great scene. And then also the layers with Cole, where at first you're like, he's wary of this psychologist. And now you're like, oh, he's wary because there's a ghost in his home. And he's probably worried about his mom because there's the bit where he like waits for her to leave and go to the kitchen. Ooh. Okay. You, got, you guys are selling me on this idea that he knows Malcolm's a ghost the whole time. <laughs> I, that to me was where I, I really saw it. I wasn't so sure the first time in the church, but it was that moment where like the mom leaves and then HJO's face gets like really serious and he's looking super suspiciously and he doesn't move. Mm-hmm. So if the the scene in the school where they had the three supposed well presumed criminals like just hanging at the top of the stairs, he's like don't move, don't move and he doesn't move mm-hmm. in the scene he's frozen until they ah. get this like game going. So it's like ah uh, so good. <laughs> I need to rewatch this one because I, I want to see all of the little things that I know I missed. Yeah. And there's, there's, it's just a good scene for all like the character interaction between the main three, because I just love the, the, how was your day and the game they play of like telling each other what happened, but it's like their ultimate wish fulfillment. And that is such a sweet moment that ends with the making of triangle pancakes that becomes this power play game like it it is uh, to me like this is the scene where Shyamalan earned his screenwriting nomination yeah it's it's such a yeah leading into the game it is such a sweet scene again with like Cole and his mom I just all three of those characters are like so well written and that scene is so well acted and the way they have everything staged so that it looks like the mom and Malcolm are sitting across from each other and you kind of just assume that they had a conversation but she never makes eye contact with him, never looks at him, never references him. And when she says, you have an hour, we assume she's talking to Malcolm. But she's really just telling Cole, like, that's how long it will take for the pancakes to be ready. Can you imagine trying to act against somebody and pretend they're not there? <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, I'm and every sure time we record it. this podcast together, what are you talking about? Okay, you know what? <laughs> I didn't ask to be read to filth right now. (laughs) (laughs) But no, again, the acting piece, and I'm sure that maybe, I don't know if I'm overblowing it, but like, it's believable. So believable. Yeah. And again, that's one of those scenes that like, it totally just depends on what you know and what your perspective is, because the performances don't change no matter how many times you watch it. Just your perspective shifts. And I think we talked about that a lot with Diabolique too, where like the audience's point of view and what you just assume to be true based on kind of which character you're closest to completely changes the film. Next we have the birthday party scene, which I wanna know, what are these kids' problems? And who raised these kids? Rich people. (laughs) 
with so spiral cute. staircases in their house. A gorgeous house. Beautiful house. They yeah, didn't yeah. even know For what sure Chuck E. Haunted. Cheese was. Like, I, Yeah, can we talk about the mom in the 90s being like, what's Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> Least believable part of this entire movie. Like, let's so be honest true. here. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, even rich moms do what Chuck E. Cheese was. Come on. <laughs> But rich moms own stocking Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> That's how they got rich. If you've ever seen pictures of the original Chucky, terrifying Scary. animatronic, terrifying. Belongs in a horror film. <laughs> no. That's what was in that cupboard. That was in the cupboard. <laughs> the old like rotting metal skeleton. Of... But th- that the way that they build up the spiral staircase and the red balloon like very reminiscent of that shot it's a beautiful beautiful shot i hate it with every fiber of my being (laughs) (laughs) but even like little Haley h h s j is i can't even do it um cole i his shadow on the wall like so creepy i don't know why it gave me like all about Eve vibes with the staircase scene in that movie. I super weird. Don't know why that's where my brain went, but so creepy. And that little tiny door at the, Oh, and I hate when it starts with the audio. I don't, I don't like, I don't like audio scares and you can just hear the voice and then him starting to follow it. And I'm like, but you know, ghosts exist and they follow you and talk to you like run towards the people. Cole, why are you going towards it? Why would he? The people are worse than the ghosts. Oh, that's so true. That game about the play, like, uh, I it, it's interesting because I feel like they're using this kind of like worst of childhood thing to really amp up how good a relationship he has with his mom and then kind of heighten how he's able to move to a place where to some extent he is like the selfless person being the clairvoyant that does these last wishes and helps. I don't know it. I mean, yeah, once again, humanity is the real monster mm-hmm. um, as with most horror movies. Thank you. That was so much, so much more concise than what I was trying to say. <laughs> I got you. I listened to what you meant. Um, but I, yeah, the audio build of just the person like, begging to be let out and you just see the door and then even after they shove him in and we never are in this crawl space with Cole we can only hear first the voice and then him just screaming to be let out which is one of the most horrifying parts of the movie I feel like especially when his mom hears him and runs up there and she can't get the door open and no one's doing anything (laughs) annoyed no it it, to me it is the most horrifying and it's it's especially hammered home with when tony collette comes up and that range of emotion she's going through of hearing your own child making these horrible terrified sounds and not being able to do anything and she goes through that like the banging the pulling and eventually she hits that point where she just has to throw her hands up and she starts crying she's like i don't know what to do yeah and then that's immediately when Cole stops screaming and you just hear the door like unlock which is also terrifying and then of course we have like the scene in the hospital of her really really fast though prior to that um there were a couple things I wanted to just like really quick touch on um 
But really leading up to the scene, they do amp up the creep factor super effectively. Like in the in the school scene where they're talking about the school building and he talks about the hanging there and just the bad history teacher uh, right (laughs) (laughs) he's like this courthouse is from the 1700s no of course they didn't execute people here it's like what what are you talking about but the way that they film the ending of that scene with all eyes on hjo and the fisheye lens and just this him a tantrum's not really the right word but he's trying to get his point across that like hey stop bothering me calling him the stutterer but breaks the teacher and you have this foreboding person like over you screaming at you to stop or whatever like i that was almost more terrifying to me than the jump scare that you mentioned with the people hanging at the top of the stairs i don't know Uh, both scary i personally hated the jump stick gear of people hanging and staring at me but i do want to point out that in that scene with like the teacher that means there was a ghost standing there, like egging Cole on and feeding him information about that teacher. So you're like, some teacher really hated that guy when he was a kid at that school. And I guess that's also, now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of our first hint that the ghosts aren't all scary. Like that the ghosts also could help Cole. Interesting. Yeah. That's the first time I realized that. So anyway, just wanted to touch on that really fast. But um, we do, as you mentioned in the hospital scene, get into the icy dead people reveal and the really sweet ending of just stay here while I go to sleep, which I my heart melted. I'm like, yeah, I, I want Bruce Willis to make sure the ghosts stay away. <laughs> I would trust ghost Bruce Willis and non-ghost Bruce Willis to keep the ghosts away. Absolutely. But after that reveal, that is where we really hammer home and start seeing very much what Cole sees. The initial scene with this where he has to get up and go to the bathroom and the way they build tension there with first him being terrified, very clearly need to go to the bathroom. Oh, I was having like flashbacks to being mm-hmm. a kid and when you have to like make the sprint down the hall. Yeah, and he, he does that. He's there. The risk reward. Yep. It's fine, but you get the wonderful creepy jump scare of somebody walking quickly through the frame in the foreground. This is one of the jump scares that I forgot. So every jump scare from now until the Misha Barton jump scare, I thought was going to be the Misha Barton jump scare. And I kept getting scared by stuff that wasn't that. And then I was like, God damn it. (laughs) How many more until we get to the Misha Barton? Barton. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was bad. I like having my notes multiple times written and scratched out. This is the scariest scene in the movie because I thought it was going into that. scene. <laughs> <laughs> it just builds. I, I love the structure here. Like you said, Ian, now that the reveal is out that the, the script and the editing is set up in such a way to show Cole's life as this nonstop barrage of these spirits, just like barging into his life. And because they see what they want to see, 
like hitting him with their their worst moment like their high trauma and for a nine-year-old to just constantly be pelted with that i i want to say like i love i love the ic dead people monologue but i think Haley joe osmond just showing the terror every time these apparitions show up and I think that's where he becomes performance of the movie for me. I'm going to, I'm going to call it, I think he even beats Tony Collette because he is so good at showing like how exhausting and trying this existence is because this is what he sees every waking hour and most of the night. Yeah. And just like that you can see the fear and the sadness in him, but it's still like, so this young kid trying to control that for like the benefit mm-hmm. of others around him. It is, Oh, it's heartbreaking. And it helps that he's like the cutest kid in the entire world. Yeah, which was a great move. I think Shyamalan originally did want kind of like a darker brooding kid, kind of like the kid that harbors a secret and he knows, which would be the stereotypical like creepy kid in a horror movie. So he definitely made the right call with like the kid who actually looks scared and wants out and is vulnerable because that moment where he, you know, he sees the housewife who's cut her wrists and he runs back to his tent and just that that like talk he has to himself like you're okay you're okay and trying to just like calm himself down is so good and i loved the reveal of the tent too because that gave some additional context to why when he ran away from bruce willis in the church he grabbed a jesus statue and Mm -hmm. it's like there are almost like new pitying lows that I've I hit throughout the film and maybe pity is not quite the right feel of what I was feeling it's more of just a really heavy empathy for what he's going through um and that oh it tears at your heartstrings you're like you you've literally created this sanctuary in your own house and then later that sanctuary is going to be shown to be not the sanctuary that he thinks it is, which, oh, so like, again, setting up this, like, well, he does have a safe space and then to take it away from him later is just, oh, it's the scariest scene in the film and it will happen after like 10 more jump scares. <laughs> and and all of this also better contextualizing um, Vincent's dilemma in the opening scene of the movie that imagine a, a kid who has no way to deal with this and no one to turn to and no safe space, it all like starts to make so much sense. Yeah, I also hate, uh, Vincent describes this earlier and then I think Cole describes it with the I see dead people scene where they're like, you know when you're alone and you feel creeped out and like the hairs on your arms rise up and I was like sitting in my apartment being like, oh shit, I'm alone. Oh God, no. <laughs> are, your, are the hairs on your arms rising up? <laughs> Uh, no, that's what the five blankets were for. It's not super cold where I live either right now. So I was just like way overheated, but I was like, <laughs> if I have the blankets, I'm dying of heat stroke on my couch. Then the ghost can't manif- manifest because like, it's not cold enough. They don't fit between the blanket and you. So, Hey, <laughs> exactly. The logic works out. Now we do get some additional, like more development of, Cole and his mom's relationship, the really sweet bas- like uh, shopping basket scene places him very solidly in uh, Halloween. But also the fact that she couldn't, I, I think she couldn't make it to the play. Is Was that it? Or 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just remember the camcorders coming up yeah. and thinking that that was so of its time. Um, also, just like there are some funny moments in this movie. Like that's one of them. And my thought was, I was like, how many of those parents actually went back and watched that tape? Two. How many of those camcorders just gathered dust? It's like everyone. It's the '90s version of everyone with their phone out. We also. This is where we have the kid who was in the commercial. I think he's introduced a little bit earlier, but he just comes back for my favorite laugh of the movie later at the end, so I have to point him out. That is that is a good one. I, I also like the laugh of you actually get to see the cough syrup commercial and Cole throws the boot to turn the TV <laughs> off. is very, very good. I, I will say, since I'm doing nothing but gushing about the movie, I will say I think the shopping cart scene is maybe the one scene that I think overplays how great a mom Tony Collette is. And I, I think she's great. I, I think HJO just goes a little overboard with the, the Jack I'm flying stance. <laughs> so such a fair read on that. I mean, and I say that but, just because they could take it out and I would feel the same way about the entire thing. Right. But, but it is a sweet moment. It comes at the, like, right after, like, some really harrowing moments, too. So I think maybe that's why they leave it in. Um, for me, like my favorite Tony Collette mom moment is when after they get back from the hospital, she just calls the mom of the kid that locked him into the thing and is like, oh, like very calmly, like, I just want to tell you that, like, tell your kids to, like, keep their hands off my son. Like, I heard just being, like, calm, but also, like, laying down the law. I was like, that is, yeah. I think, her best mom moment. It is so good. And I, and I mean, the shopping cart thing is immediately redeemed by the next scene, which is the bumblebee pendant scene, which is, like, like I mentioned earlier, this this is the moment I'm so glad is in the script and left in the movie to not make Tony Collette super mom who can constantly keep her cool, that she does get to have a moment where she has the speech that I love, where she says, I'm tired in my mind, my body, we're not doing so good. We need to answer each other's prayers and how she tells him to leave you've had enough roast beef because she thinks he's lying about taking the pendant is such a great humanizing moment for her and i feel like that is the audience on the first time watch the bumblebee pendant conversation is when we realize the cabinets wasn't cold mm-hmm. that's when we're like oh it was definitely a ghost i like to think it was grandma trying to find him pop tarts but that's just because it's less <laughs> scary that way and shout out to that could explain how he kept his cool yeah, if it's just grandma coming in, I wouldn't be worried. <laughs> but like HJO's performance here too, and the way you can see him thinking about, do I say yes or no to this question about taking the pendant? Like being able to see that on, you know, long career actors' faces is a pleasure, let alone like teeny tiny little... Haley Joel Osment. So again, totally yeah. deserve that acting nom. That's a great moment. It immediately leads into another jump scare. Uh, the dog going crazy too. Cause this is when, this is when you get the kid in the hall, um, mm-hmm. which this is a terrifying jump scare, a huge trigger warning for this one too. We have the kid who died of gun violence. Yeah. Which, Said the line, like, let me show you where my dad keeps his gun and turns around and the back of his head is missing. That I really hate that one. Really, really hate that one. Um, and But then you immediately go into the moment where he runs to his mom. And he's like, if you're not very mad, can I stay in your room tonight? And that's when she's like, the look at my face, I'm not very mad. 
I'm not tearing up right now. You are tearing up right now. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, I was. I was so bad because we, we have the reprise of look at my face, but then also just her pleading with him, like, talk to me. And yeah. that, yeah, just again, her, her portrayal as a parent who is trying to keep it all together and knows something terrible is happening to her son and just the communication not being there and how frustrated she feels that she's clearly making so many right moves. <laughs> she's, she's keeping her cool so often and yet she's still not getting results. The way she plays it is to the nine. She's so freaking good. I, I have to throw this in just because when, when Hereditary came out, and I remember a lot of people were saying, like, where's Tony Collette been? Like, why have we been sleeping on her? I'm like, we haven't. She was in Sixth Sense, and <laughs> we all have. loved her. Do you guys not remember? <laughs> yeah, I feel like she's, like, that one of those, like, actors that, like, a lot of people are like, oh, if I see her in something, I will watch it. Like, I don't care what it is. But she's also not, like, crazy, crazy mainstream a lot of the time. Also, I will never watch Hereditary, so I'll just take everyone's word for that. It's on my list for this you month. You shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> it would make a very interesting double feature with Sixth Sense. Ooh, well. She gets to go back to the mom dealing with some family trauma. Oof. I feel like intergenerational trauma is such an interesting and fertile ground to make movies on. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why a lot of horror movies go for it, because it's like really relatable and also you can tackle it from so many different directions. Like everything everywhere all at once. You can cut that part, but like, mm, love it. So good. Anyway, <laughs> back to Sixth Sense. I think this is where um, we should like pause for a moment and talk about kind of the collection of scenes with Malcolm and his wife that we've kind of been getting a little bit throughout. And it's like the little snippets of the scenes of like him coming home and her being asleep in their wedding video being on. And it's like everything that's happening with her, him discovering the antidepressants in the cabinet from his point of view, it's like a, Oh, she's struggling. And part of it's my fault. Cause like, I haven't been here and it's like, yes, but you haven't been there because you're dead and she's grieving you. I just, those scenes have to be like, they have to be edited so perfectly and acted so perfectly and written so perfectly because I think those are the scenes where it's like the most, you're in the most danger of like showing your hand too soon. Agreed. I, I will say I, I didn't really like minor gripe here, how they played into Bruce Willis's jealousy with this new person who was coming into the picture and I, it just felt like it went to a place of anger very quickly when I'm like just talk to your damn wife and like un understand why he didn't now but like it uh that was the thing that felt most out of character for me they have it be there for the clues though right because remember it gets cold when they get angry so multiple times, like after he has suspicions of the affair, when he comes home, especially when she's like asleep on the couch, you see like her just in her sleep, tighten the blanket around herself and stuff like that. So I think it's there partially for like the clues and to give a reason why she might not be talking to him. True. Yeah, it's it's definitely her her role was there to to do the misdirection and, and provide like the the core theme of communication but yeah there there is a little character work there that could be a little more solid just by like yeah why doesn't he try talking to her um 
I yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer. I, I feel like the time jump is maybe the answer to say like in however many weeks or months or whatever have passed since the incident with Vincent that he he has shown to have developed somewhat of an obsession with the case, which I feel is something that could maybe have been played up more. Like it's, it's definitely shown that it's on his mind, but I think like to, to show that it's really dominated, like everything he's been thinking of would justify why he hasn't been talking to her as much. Yeah. Well, and then from like a ghost standpoint, we have the scene as he comes in late for the anniversary dinner where he says like time, I've been having trouble with time lately. So like mm. that, it, which initially just seems like he's obsessed with the case. And then you're like, oh, it's because he's a ghost and time works weird for ghosts. Right. Oh. That's another good laugh that I want to tack on. I do love his line where he says, I, th- I thought you went the other Italian restaurant I asked you to marry me in. It's that goofy, like Dr. Susie type thing. Love drunk. It, it, I, I like it. <laughs> or his attempt to be. And then, of course, the iconic when the bill comes and he reaches for it and she grabs it and then just says happy anniversary and leaves, which totally reads as like she's pissed at him because he was late for the anniversary dinner. And it's just like another in a long line of like missed events. But actually, again, it's like if we're looking at a year later, it's probably like their first or second anniversary since he died. And we were like, again, this is someone who is grieving. Did you want to talk about the jewelry store scene, either of y'all or no? Um, I could kind of take it or leave it. Yeah, I'm okay leaving it. I don't have a lot on it. Yeah, I don't have a lot on it. But I think the key interaction between Cole and Malcolm at this juncture is where Malcolm tries to essentially break up with HJO as, as a patient. And this, again the sorrow that borderlines on terror from Cole is uh, tugs at tugs at your heartstrings and is such a great performance. I just, I know we keep just hammering on that, but geez, dude, like he's doing a lot. I love that Bruce Willis can't look him in the eye. Cause you know, he doesn't want to like deep down he doesn't want to and he knows it's like the bat the wrong move but he's just trying to salvage what he thinks is a broken relationship with his wife i think the key phrase from writing here is when cole says don't fail me which is exactly what vincent had said vincent had said you failed me and i think that's the point that gets malcolm to go back and review those files uh the files that are constantly in the locked basement can I just point out that I love how they framed the shots on the locked basement so you didn't ever see there was a side table in front of the door. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, so great. And this is where we get the other creepy audio that I hate so much of uh, the tape from one of his Vincent sessions where he has to leave to take a call, the tape recorder's still running, and you hear a voice like pleading in Spanish uh, that we of course are like Vincent's all ghosts too. Yeah. But uh, the tension in that scene with the repeated rewinding and the like intense close up on this tape recorder, <laughs> like every time he turned the volume up, I turned my TV volume down. <laughs> <laughs> the white, the white noise is really effective. Well, the, the score is so good in that moment too. Yeah. of just ramping everything up. 
so I also love how now that Malcolm does actually truly believe you see a massive switch in the power dynamic and the interaction with Cole in the church where Cole is literally above on this upper level. I love the way this is shot. I love the way this is shot of Cole walking along like the balcony and then Malcolm walking along below as they chat. I also, one, just the interior of that church is so beautiful, but I love that it's there's a lot of white in it, so it feels lighter um, and like more open and airy as opposed to like all of these great but also horrifying shadows we've been getting the whole time. And this this is the scene where like we get the pitch, right? That what if they're here because they need something? What if instead of being afraid of them, we talk to them and tried to figure out? That's this scene, right? Yes. Because I, I won't lie, at this at this point of the movie, it was bedtime for my daughter, so some things get a little jumbled <laughs> up for me. No, it's all good. Well, don't worry because this leads into the scariest moment in the movie. Ah. We finally get to the Misha Barton scare. Real quick, are your notes, Maggie, like when this finally happens, is it like triple circled and like finally is written in all caps next to it? It's in Latin and English. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but I do finally have scariest scene not crossed out. And then the next (laughs) note is the next two notes are I hate these angles and his fucking frosty breath. Because he starts breathing and you can see his breath. And I'm like, this is it. I know this one's it. And so I was feeling very vindicated that it was finally the scare I'd like been waiting for. But I also was like totally just like hiding from the TV at the same time. Not as scary as I'd remembered it. Still horrifying, but not as scary as I'd well, remembered it. And for me, it wasn't as scary because they seemed to make such a conscious effort for Misha Barton to look just sad like so fucking sad and that was the thing that really got me that even though it was kind of gross seeing her essentially throw up like it was more of a like oh you're in immense pain and like just like i don't know i I felt a connection to this particular ghost that you didn't really get in the other ones for me I think it's such a conscious choice that the first ghost he like tests that yeah. like reaching out to and helping is another child. I feel like that adds like a layer of comfort and it being less scary and it makes like that interaction between them yes sadder but also more like believable and natural that like of course the first ghost that he would be like okay I can do this with would be another mm-hmm. child who's in pain because like that's what he would identify with. But the the story's brilliance again in subverting its trope of like the creepy kid. Like to me, this is overtly, you know, it's it's the puking kid. It's it's the exorcist. <laughs> but but like you're saying, Ian, to to make the reveal be like this this is somebody who like this was their existence for months before they died. Like this is what they're stuck in. It's a it's a pitiful state. It's not a demon child. It's it's somebody stuck in a cycle of trauma that they need help getting out of. And the way that he ends the, do you want to tell me something like it wasn't Mm. quite like a full on cheer, but I was like, yes, do it. Stretch yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And that's when we go into the funeral scene, which is 
masterfully done. Uh, first off, because I remember just before it switched to the scene, I was like, hang on, in my memory, they go there in a car, which wouldn't make any sense because Bruce Willis is a ghost. But no, they are on public transportation. I think, too, kind of something that is well done here is as we have Cole and uh, Malcolm moving through the crowd, uh, you have his little clip on tie, which is adorable. Um, but you get the backstory of the girl who came to visit him and also like the situation just from people arriving at the funeral. So we get the idea that it was, I think her name was Kira. She was sick for a really long time. She died. No one really knows why they had to go see all these doctors. So it's a mystery. And then also the reveal that now her younger sister has been sick as well. Yeah. And I I think for me, there was a lot of, I don't know, there was the jump scare of, ghost uh kira grabbing cole's ankle especially with heightened by the marionettes just like chilling in the entire room that they were leaning heavy leaning heavy on some creepiness why did there have to be dolls (laughs) but again they bring back that really like pleading expression on ghost kira's face as she's trying to give him this box and the way the soundtrack here too is like maybe a little creepy, but to me gave me more of a sense of like curiosity and wonder and like we're seeing things progress. It was a very different kind of tone that it set even for a funeral. Yeah. Um, we have the just heartbreaking shot of him going to the dad. I do want to point out here, you see it in the background, then you see it later. The mom is not wearing black. She is the only person in that set, not wearing black, she is wearing red. Brilliant choice uh, to offset her. Uh, yeah, that's, this whole scene is, I think, where I really started crying. I cried a lot. We had a conversation before we started recording, and I think we all agreed this is the only horror film that really makes us cry, other than in fear. I, I would like the record to state that I don't cry in fear at horror film. I haven't. I haven't cried at fear at horror films. Maybe Hereditary will make me change my mind, but we'll see. Let me know. Yeah, I don't. I don't cry in fear, but I definitely cower. Like I, I too have the blanket fort that I will hide behind very, very often. You might want to reinforce that blanket fort. <laughs> it's been Get better clothes. Not impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I say staples for me from here on out. Um, do you guys, while we're on this, and another question on like, is this overused? The 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 motif of the color red, it's popping up all over the place when we have interactions between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Does did that ever overplay for either of you? I don't know if I really noticed it, and I'm not sure if I would have 100 percent noticed if I hadn't read that that was a thing that they had done. Um, I'm trying to think if there, I feel like there was one instance where I was like, eh, that's a little, little much for me, but I don't remember what it was. So maybe it wasn't really that big of a deal. I didn't mind it. And I'm going to be honest, had you not asked that question, I would have totally missed it. (laughs) Oh, cool. Well, that's good. Cause I don't, I don't think it's overused. But some folks, again, I think, because, especially because it's a movie famous for a twist ending, some folks are very critical 
of things that it, it overdoes or doesn't do enough. And, and I've heard that a lot. That's like the red thing really annoys a lot of people. And I'm like, it's it's a cinematography choice. Like it's it's good filmmaking. You you assign importance to specific shapes and colors like this is this is how it's done. I don't think I would have noticed it if I like hadn't read that it was done. So, but honestly, I also feel like sometimes with twist endings, people just want to be like, here are all the reasons that I knew. Yeah. And that like, it didn't get me or it shouldn't get you. And it's like, it got us like, come on, let's revel in the fact that we got tricked. And and with the color in particular, I kind of like if you read it as a double meaning with, passion whether that be for your currently Mm. living wife or your therapy cases or your unbending need to kill your children like there's i mean jesus i would have a hard time saying that there isn't like some passion however twisted behind that so like i i actually like that double reading but that's just me yeah i i love it I do like the little scene where he like gives the little like finger puppet to the younger sister. I think that's really sweet. And I think that's such a good moment to see because it's Cole's understanding that like he, he helped like not only the ghost, but he also like saved this little girl's life. Um, So I think that's such a, a lovely little button. And I feel like after this, we kind of dial back on the jump scares a little bit, right? Because Cole's no longer, afraid of well because we get a lot of reveals with this not only do we get the idea that like they're just they're scared too and they need help but also this particular episode getting at this like core human need that kira's thing is not like avenge me (laughs) like I, i died too soon it's my sister's in trouble like it's it's too late for me let's save her so these these things that these ghosts want are Though they come from places of violence or negative emotion, that a lot of their requests stem from selfless acts, that it's about just saying that last kind word that somebody needed to hear or help my sister. Like that to me is, again, one of these great subversions this movie makes and why I'm upset at people who are like, it's not scary enough to be a horror movie. Like it's. Yeah, but it's, like, beautiful enough to be a great film. Also, like, horror's not just slasher. Like, that's just a subgenre, people. Like, we can still have the existential dread of ghosts and unfinished business and find that just as horrifying. And still some awesome scares of the family being hung. Yeah, that was not great. Which, which I will mention that that is the jump scare that to me is maybe the most in danger of like you just threw this in for a jump scare. But it is followed by Cole laying out the rules of it gets cold when they're angry, don't move. So I forgive it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's the first. I think that's the first one too. We see them twice. I think right because I think don't we also. Oh, no. I was thinking that we might see them a second time after Malcolm believed him. But I think that's after Cole has made the confession. But Malcolm doesn't believe him quite yet. Right. That's the we only see him yeah, once. I believe that's the only time we see them. Maybe we don't see them again. Maybe we just see the staircase yeah, we, we, and Cole talks. Yeah, about we it. see the staircase and we see like zoomed in shots of their faces. So we get the creepy effect of them looking at us, which is great ghost movie moment. Hate it. <laughs> I hate every second of it. I think it's a beautiful moment between Malcolm and Cole, and I hate it. 
it's fine because it. L- <laughs> I hate it that history teacher is a bad teacher. <laughs> I just. But the culmination of Kira's storyline really is what marks that change in Cole, and move into a another like school production of uh like King Arthur and the Knights the Round Table something like that, but the. I didn't catch right at first that the person like coaching Cole was a ghost until they turn the corner and you see that this person is horrifically burned. Yeah. And then you have the really bad history teacher being like, you know, when I was here, (laughs) there was a fire in this part of the building. And Cole's like, yeah, I know, man. (laughs) Tell me about it. But they're friends. I like that moment that like they've they've reconciled. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is like a good moment to drive home that like again, like the ghosts can also they don't have to be scary and like they can also help Cole yeah. as well. Um I we have my favorite laugh, which is the kid who is in the cough drop commercial, um, being super mad and having been cast as the village idiot. And delivering a line. He at- sucked big time. <laughs> yes. That, that one. I just love the one kid that goes, silence village idiot. <laughs> I miss that. But the, this this kind of like potentially heavy handed metaphor for Cole, like reaching his destiny by pulling the sword from the stone. Like, OK, I I get what you were doing there, oh, I think. But but he gets again his wish fulfillment that he told his mom and earlier in the movie, like everybody picked me up and carried me on their shoulders. He gets that. Oh, moment. that's okay. It's good catharsis. Yeah, I missed that in the beginning. If I'm being completely honest, so I, uh, with new information, will change my opinion. Love that scene. It's I have no notes. <laughs> <laughs> I missed nothing of it through my veil of tears. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I've, I, at this point, I've been crying for a little while. I think, and it only gets worse in the scene in the car. Well, better, but more crying. Uh, well, first, first, I want to talk about Cole and Malcolm's goodbye. Oh, it's it's like the happiest we've seen Cole. He feels like a new kid. And I just love the part where he he understands that helping him is Malcolm's unfinished business. Mm-hmm. And so he knows when he's like, oh, we're not going to see each other tomorrow, are we? Mm-hmm. On first reading, it's like, oh, because you don't need your psychologist anymore. But on second reading, it's like, because that's Malcolm's yeah. unfinished business and it's been completed. Uh, Cole says, the Let, well, let's pre- just pretend we're going to see each other tomorrow, which is heartbreaking. And then the suggestion that he try and talk to his wife while she's sleeping because she might hear him that way. Ian, were you still completely unsuspecting that he was a ghost at this point? Completely unsuspecting. <laughs> I had Good. no clue. Good. I was got. Very got. <laughs> but not before I was very crying <laughs> at yep. the scene in the car. Yep. Um, that's the Oscar nominations right there. Oh yeah, that scene in the car. Yeah, that's the one. And just honestly, the 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 writing with how they're able to bring in these like unknowable facts as you know the verification that cole really has talked to grandma but the reveal kind of as we mentioned of the well intergenerational trauma sort of thing where it's like okay you were really angry you didn't come see me dance but i did see you dance and then the piece at i'm proud of you every day like 
But yeah, she said that when you came to see her, you asked a question and she said her answer was every day. And I love that it's every day. It's not just yes. Mm -hmm. Because then you're like, oh, it could be like a 50-50. But it's like the every day, which really gets you. And then you find out that the question was, do I make you proud? Ugh. And that's just followed up. Well, was was preceded by uh, his mom saying almost angrily, like, I would never think that about you when he's talking about being like weird or off. So just like the way they amp this scene up is beautiful. But I, I love that performance choice she makes that like the way she delivers that is angry, but not because she's angry at him. But it's like, don't ever say that about yourself. I love that. She's so angry that like he feels the need to question that, that like it's been said to him so many mm-hmm. times. Oh, and then when they hug, I was like just full balling. Yeah, I think at that point. Yeah, I don't I don't think I can talk much about this scene because I might just like bust out sobbing right here <laughs> I, I i think ian and i have cried like four out of five of our last recordings the 90s the 90s knew how to get us for sure because i've i i've said this on cinemas before as somebody who lost their mom at a young age i i am not i just lose it on my episode with babe there's the same idea of like someone with a maternal figure and I, I lose it on that show. And this is another one of those moments of like, what is going on in the nineties with <laughs> mothers and sons and just nailing it. Cause this is one of those key scenes that I feel like is so authentic. Like I'll, I'll back you up Ian. that. I think the writing is amazing here. Like th- these actors have some great material to work with and then they just run with it magnificently. And both of them like for sure earn their Oscar noms here. Yeah, I think after, I think I like texted my mom and I was just like, happy October, mom. And I'm like crying. <laughs> oh, yeah, that line, she saw you dance. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got to stop now. I'm I'm already like low-key crying. <laughs> <laughs> the specific feedback too, not just she saw you dance, but she, she said you looked like an angel. Is so, like, like you said, that's not just like this 50-50, like I could take a guess based off what my mom did but to say like something that would have come from grandma and that she's sorry she keeps stealing the pendant she just really likes it that's my favorite scene in the movie mine too ends on a note of hope it's a great way to send both of those characters off like this real everything's gonna be okay after all this horror and trauma and everything it's they're finally open with each other yeah they got it and just like the reassurance too, because like we saw worst case scenario for Colt with Vincent at the beginning of the movie and just like this reassurance that like he has the support that he needs mm-hmm. and like he will be okay, which of course leads us into Malcolm. Such a beautiful stage set to have him take the advice and talk to his wife while she's sleeping. I did not get any inkling until she started saying things like i miss you and you hear the ring drop on the floor that was literally when i think in my notes it's like oh holy shit holy shit holy shit he died (laughs) (laughs) no this is what i wanted to ask you is if there was like one moment where all of a sudden you were just like punched in the face and all the facts just like hit you all at once like if it was if it happened anytime before the reveal montage before the montage for sure but it it took it took that little bit of line where it was like i felt an inkling like a funny feeling in the back of my head it was the prickles on the back of my neck and it was the raindrop like Mm -hmm. that solidified it 
I love the way they film the ring drop too, because they don't like slow-mo on the ring falling or anything. You hear it and you hear it rolling under the chair. And then it comes out from under the chair and does the perfect like couple little circles and falls. I want to know how many times they had to film that, but I think it's perfect because it has the same tension buildup of like the movie and the jump scares in the movie where like you hear it first and you know what it's going to be and you know it's going to be bad just in a very different way and it made all of the wedding films like it Uh, it all immediately clicked so it just masterful how do you guys feel about the montage because i i understand why they do the montage of kind of those little moments of like her taking the check and everything to kind of reinforce. I think it's also a little bit like a, Hey, we gave you the clues. We didn't pull an Agatha Christie on you where we don't give you any of the clues. And then we say the ending and are like, but you should have known I'm not bitter. I, I don't mind it. And I have this weird rationale for why I don't, because I was very young when the movie came out and very not into horror movies. So there was no chance in hell I was going to go see this in a theater. Um, but I, I wish I had because I feel like it would be such a cool experience to go see this opening weekend with folks who had no idea what was going on to hear just the reactions during the montage, to hear the gaffes and the like excitement and the, you know, like you were saying, I, I totally agree, Maggie, that like it's so frustrating for people, especially in mysteries who are obsessed with like, I figured it out before the reveal, like I'm smarter. And I'm like, but isn't it kind of fun to like be there with a bunch of other people and be realizing it all at the same time and bask in like, like you said, that they played fair. Like, this is not a cheap trick or anything. They're showing you, like, here's where it was. But it fits with the character. It's it's Bruce Willis figuring it all out. It's him reliving these moments and having to come to terms with what's happened to him, which is something we have seen all of the other ghosts, like, have a hard time doing. I'm a little torn on it. I do. I love getting got when the movie played fair. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't play yeah. fair, then I'm really upset about it because I'm like, you... You didn't trust like your script enough to pull one over. Uh, but I, cause I'm trying to remember the first time I watched this, I think I was in high school. So like I was well-versed enough in movies where I think I like, you know, like theoretically if there had been a hint, like I could have gotten it, but I was like so pleased with that twist because I was like, oh my God, it was executed so well. And I'm torn on the montage because part of me wants to be like, just trust that the audience got it. Like, don't reinforce with the montage. But also, they don't pick every moment for the montage. Like, there are definitely moments that you pick up on second viewing that you're like, oh, that was there too. Yeah. And, and it gives Cole a lot of power because the moments they pick are accompanied by warnings he's given about how the ghost world works. That it's they see what they want to see. It's, it's not every rule he's laid out, but it is like the moments they've picked from Malcolm's experience that track with that. And it's a it lets the score again, like be amazing. <laughs> like, I really love the music through the montage, too. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, that final like cut where he's like collapsed in the wound and it cuts back to like that exact same night. He's wearing the exact oh. same outfit and we just pick up the scene where it would have left off. I love its execution. It's a weird, that's a weird word for this, but it, the way that it shows the moment he passes away that line, like it doesn't even hurt anymore. 
is so good. I do have a note for his wife, which is call a damn ambulance. <laughs> okay, I was annoyed about that, too. I feel like she's not doing that quickly enough. Um, yeah. But I I do love the realization from, like, being the ghost of, like, I did finish what I set out to do, which is help someone who needed it. And mm-hmm. we laid that breadcrumb earlier because I think he said a couple times where if he helps Cole, he feels like it's making up for the fact that he couldn't help Vincent. Mm-hmm. Um so I do love that moment. But I do did just desperately want Anna to call. I was like, Anna, pick up the damn phone. I guess it had been like maybe ripped from the was, wall or something. Yeah. I just have to break it. But that's my one note <laughs> I may have missed my time to interject on this. So feel free to cut whoever is. But did you feel like that montage was also to some extent kind of like a mystery thriller trope? And I only say that because what I immediately thought of was Saw and the ending mm-hmm. of the first one. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. I, I know, but... <laughs> no, I, got, I got you. Yeah, I've seen the connections. It, it's like very much a, a let me lay out how this went down for you. And so, I, 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 Mike, you're a lot better versed in those sorts of films than I am. So Thank I don't know how you. common it is, but that's kind of where... I my mind went yeah well I mean it's like you said it's you want to show you did your homework I think to the audience and there there are ways this can play because I think there is a way to overdo it that is a little too like smug and self-satisfied and be like I got you and let me show you all the ways I again I don't get that with this one just because of how it connects to Cole and being like the the authority on the subject and how this is all matched with Malcolm's experiences and stuff and, you know, I'm, I'm a guy I've said tons of times on my own show. I'm all for giving the audience credit and stuff. But I, I don't mind this as like a concise review to relive some of these moments and get to have that moment of like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. Like, I was right there. I saw it. But the way that they played with point of view, like, completely made me miss what the big reveal is. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely a trope. But I think that this one's executed well. And a trope's not a problem if you execute it well. Yeah, that makes sense. I really, really like this movie. Um, and I feel like that's saying something because it was a horror movie that I watched again. This was not the first time Woo! I'd watched it. There are not many horror movies I can say that about that aren't like a universal monster movie. I'd also say this is one of the few or the only horror movie that I've really seen that has such a warm and satisfying ending i do have a note that is how is how does this horror movie have so much heart yeah because i think we've seen we've done some character driven ones like psycho's very character driven right but you don't get any warm fuzzies from psycho well and again I, I i think some would like say that's to its detriment that again like it's not a horror movie it's this like family drama that has ghosts in it and stuff and i you know okay like fair point but i i think it checks off enough of like what i like out of a ghost story like it's one of my favorite ghost movies but again i love that it has the feels and it can get me and i sob through about like the last 15 minutes straight yeah well and i think if you think about ghost movies and ghost tales in general like not a lot of them are like horribly horrific like they, like a ghost story isn't a slasher genre type story like it is a slow build it is about like being creepy and like not understanding what's happening at first 
So I don't know. I feel like it fits with the genre. I think it's great. I highly recommend it to people. Diabolique and Sixth Sense, great double feature. That's one of the best double feature pairings we've done, I think. I mean, yeah, not to toot Maggie's horn because she'll do it for herself. But um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I didn't fully understand the impact of and the similarities of the two together until now. Totally different feels on them, but masterfully done. One ghost stories, one real, one question mark, and then the twist. Like, ah, it's great. I'm also really happy that we got two films that Ian had never seen so that like you had the fresh experience, but no, but you had, you had the fresh experience (laughs) of the twist. True. Cause I feel like since Mike and I had both seen it before, uh, it was kind of that feeling of like, I was trying to remember what I felt the first time I watched it, which like, you know, is always going to be a little bit inaccurate. Yeah, that's what I was excited about. And I, I gave kudos to everybody who had not spoiled it for you, Ian, because that's that's an act of kindness in this world in of itself that you you made it all the way to watching Sixth Sense in your adult years without knowing the ending. That's amazing. Big shout out to everyone Ian's interacted with in the past 30 years who didn't bring up the ending of Sixth Sense. It was all you guys. Okay, not, you did it. <laughs> you it made was this not possible. 30 years. It's 23 years. Thank you very much. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> I know the movie's only been out since 1999. That's true. You didn't have a time traveler. For someone whose job is literally math, I can't do math outside of work hours. (laughs) What was the other one I messed up? Or maybe it's just horror movies. They scare the math out of me. I messed up some math in Silence of the Lambs as well. Really quick aside about scaring the math out of you. Have you seen The Count censored? Yes. Like as in from Sesame Street. Yes. You've Every sent it says, to me. Okay, cool. Just making sure. Ian and Meg, are we running too long for me to ask Ian one more question? Nah, go for no. it. No. Okay. I, I know we're going to go on long, guys, but I did want to ask Ian a question because you had mentioned before we started recording with this double feature that you they both followed this pattern of you were like, these are really good movies. And then the twist was kind of what pushed them over the edge into, ah, oh, this movie's great. Um, has you, you sound like, as we've talked, like you're more high on the movie. Like, would you still say that now that the twist is what makes the movie? I mean, y- yes. Cause I, I think the way that I think about it is I would still be, I would still be satisfied if, uh, no, that's a lie. I was about to say I'd be satisfied if we never saw Malcolm after the car scene, but I, I would want to see something of his. But I'm playing Monday morning quarterback a little bit here, but if I take the twists out, like the journey is still satisfying. Mm-hmm. Now, do I think the twists heighten the experience? Absolutely do. Sure. So I, in my mind, Sixth Sense wouldn't have necessarily been a best picture nom for were it not for the twist. But it still would have been worth watching, Ooh, I think. What do you think, Maggie? I I feel like it's both are really good movies. And then the twist just kind of ratchets them up to maybe like iconic status. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. They're both really good. And I think if you rewatch both of them after the twist, you really start to appreciate like the technical elements of both of them more 
And I do think because they have the twist, it really, it's just like screenwriters flexing to -hmm. like really just see like it's, honestly, they both remind me so much of the sting in that you're like (laughs) the construction of this script had to be perfect to pull off what it wanted to pull off. And I mean, that's another one, not a horror movie, but like that has kind of this like twist to it as well. So I, but I think like any sort of script that has a misdirect that you can like see executed, I always love rewatching those because you like, it's just so much fun to watch people at like the top of their game, especially with writing. Yeah. You both make a strong point that, yeah, without this, it's, it's kind of doubtful sixth sense has the legacy that it does like it's it's doubtful it gets a best picture nom it's doubtful it makes the afi top 100 list i've just always to me this is potentially the best twist ending of all time in a movie it's it's up there with a couple but i've i've always loved this one and i kind of felt like my rationale behind that was because the movie almost doesn't need it that if if the movie just ended with malcolm reconciling with his wife it's still fairly satisfying. It's a bit of a repeat of the car scene, but like my favorite moment of the movie is the car scene. So it's it's not like the peak of the movie for me, which is probably why I enjoy the twist that not everything has to hinge around that. It's just this like beautiful cherry on top after you've had this rich emotional catharsis, which not saying anything new here, sadly, is something that M. Night Shyamalan kind of lost as he kept going, that it became a lot more about just being clever and like laying it all down but it didn't work because it's what you expected from him but this one you know no matter how many times i see it it's still it doesn't ruin the movie for me that you know the twist you think you know he's a ghost like everything about it just makes it richer and you kind of come to realize like that wasn't like what he was going for anyway it was just kind of this cool trick at the end but it was really this story about family and communication and dealing with trauma and redemption and like all that stuff remains whether he's a ghost or not by the end I can't, yeah, I can't deny it. it's a stronger movie with it. I feel like Shyamalan maybe felt like after, because this one is so incredibly well done and because so many people think of it for mm. the twist that I think maybe he felt like he had to like live up to it or top it or something sure. and maybe kind of lost sight of the like, yeah, the twist is great, but the secret sauce is that we care so much about Cole. We care so much about Malcolm and we're so invested in like their personal stories that we ignore all of the little clues and that again like we see everything the way that like we want to see it because we want to believe that like at the end of the day Malcolm will reconcile with his wife like I don't want him to I don't want Bruce Willis to be dead in this film yeah and I don't know it's I really do enjoy the village which I know was in some ways kind of panned for being having like I I if I were, am recalling correctly, like the twist in that was definitely didn't live up to the sixth sense. No, but I think it just comes down to the fact that the twist didn't seem to really heighten what had happened up to that point, or at least didn't for me. It's been a while since I've actually seen it. Another one of my very favorite soundtracks, uh, ever is from that movie. Mm. Um, I like the village, but I think part of the problem is that like because Sixth Sense was pulled off so expertly, then it became the expectation that like there would be a twist to a Shyamalan film. So it's like now I feel like he just needs to make something with absolutely no twist. No. And and some of his stronger movies like are devoid of them. Like Un- Unbreakable has a big twist that works really well. And Unbreakable is a great movie. I really like Signs, and Signs I think argu- arguably is like the least twisty ending he has. 
Um, and I think I'm with you. Like, I like the village. I think the village actually had he not done the twist would be a lot more fondly remembered because <laughs> there's some really good stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, the gravel road. That's the name of the one song that just like, I'm going to go listen to it after this. Cause it's <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. If you haven't already added this movie to your Halloween repertoire. Um, and I guess that's it. Unless there's anything else you guys want to throw in there. Nope. No. Cool. Mike, can you remind everybody uh, where to find Cinemusts? Anywhere you're listening to podcasts, you find us just by searching for Cinemusts. Um, we are on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and that's where we hear from you at the end of every episode on if a movie deserves to make the list of essential movies. So follow us on there. Whenever we drop a new show, we'll throw out an announcement, and you guys will have the final say. Again, I highly recommend listening if you and subscribing if you have not already. Um, if you want to find more of the Best Pictures Pod, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Best Pictures Pod on both, or you can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. I think that's it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our 2022 edition of our spooky versions. I think we're back with um, a canon episode or two, and then we'll be moving into some holiday programming as well. So stay tuned for that.